You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. On your way into worship this morning, you should have received an ESV scripture journal that includes the Gospel of Luke. That's our Advent gift to you. We hope you will use that today and in the weeks ahead and that this will be a meaningful gift for you so that you can follow along in the text that we're going to be studying for quite some time now. And uh, you can take notes, you can sketch whatever you do to remain engaged and an active participant in this teaching time each week. Our reading this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 1. You'll find this on page 6 of your scripture journal. And if you're not used to looking at a Bible, those large numbers are the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be talking this morning about chapter 1, verses 1 to 25. And to get us started, I want to read verses 5 to 17. So if you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for his people. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 17. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he, Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a word that means arrival. At the end of each calendar year, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem. Advent includes the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And typically, this time of year, we do a shorter series on Sunday mornings, one that takes up those four Sundays thereabouts. This year, however, we're doing something a bit different. We're actually introducing a much longer series. We're going to go through the entire Gospel of Luke, which is why we've given you that scripture journal so you can follow along for this whole series. So this is a series that will begin in Advent, and it actually will take us all the way up to Easter of next year. It will carry us from the birth of Jesus through the days of his earthly ministry to his death, his resurrection, 
and his ascension. And I've chosen to title this series, The Once and Future King, which some of you might know is a reference to the legends of King Arthur. Remember Arthur? Merlin, Arthur, Guinevere, Lancelot, all the characters, the, the legends that have been told and retold for hundreds and hundreds of years. Probably the best-known collection of the Arthur stories is the one by this very name, The Once and Future King, published in the 1950s by an English writer named T.H. White. Now, why in the world would I take the title of a legend, a myth, really, and use it as the title of our study of Luke's gospel. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Well, to understand my thought process, hang with me, we need to pivot to another English writer for just a moment. No surprise if you know me, J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien, most known for The Lord of the Rings, he was a member of a fellowship of Christian writers, a group of Christian writers. They gathered throughout Oxford. They met in pubs. They discussed what they were writing with each other. One of the other members of his fellowship was a man you might know his name, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis started life not as a Christian at all, but as an atheist. He was very antagonistic toward the Christian faith. Tolkien's influence was key. Tolkien was a bridge builder, helped bring Lewis to the faith. And one of the planks, one of the key planks in the bridge, in that discussion those men had, was the subject of myths. And the role that myths play. Humphrey Carpenter, in his biography of Tolkien, he records this conversation. A conversation that took place between Tolkien, Lewis, and a third friend named Hugo Dyson on a blustery night in September of 1931. It's a short conversation, but it's important. Listen. Myths are lies, Lewis said, though lies breathed through silver. No, 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 said Tolkien. They are not. You call a tree a tree, he said, and you think nothing more of the word. But it was not a tree until someone gave it that name. You call a star a star and say it is just a ball of matter moving on a mathematical course. But that is merely how you see it. By so naming things and describing them, you are only inventing your own terms about them. And just as speech is invention about objects and ideas, so myths are inventions about truth. We have come from God, Tolkien continued, and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Our myths may be misguided, but they steer, however shakily, towards the true harbor. For Tolkien, myths, all myths, steer us, however shakily, toward the true harbor. The Arthurian legends, the stories of King Arthur, they steer us towards something beautiful, towards something true. They steer us toward the true once and future king. What's the origin of this expression? It was a Latin inscription on Arthur's grave. The idea was that Arthur was the greatest king. And though he died, there was the hope that one day he would return. He was once the king and he would be the king again. He would return at the moment of England's greatest need. That myth is pointing us 
to the true once and future king. What Luke's gospel is all about. The king who did reign on this earth, who reigns even now from heaven, and who will indeed have a future reign on this earth. The once and future king, King Jesus. Now let me introduce you to the beginning of Luke's gospel. And a little bit about Luke himself. Luke was a physician trained as a physician. He was a highly intelligent, conscientious man, and this comes across in the writing of his gospel. He tells us in the prologue that he was interested in using only the best sources in this account that he has provided for us. Ancient historians believed that you either had to be an eyewitness yourself or you had to have access to the eyewitnesses. It was the only way you could be a good historian. Now, Luke was not an eyewitness himself. That is, he was not one of the apostles that walked with Jesus, but he had access to the eyewitnesses. He interviewed those eyewitnesses extensively. He tells us that he has followed all things closely for some time, and now he has decided to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Really, this is a work of theological history. Luke shows himself to be the very first, the very first Christian historian. He provides us, modern readers, with a reliable account of the life of Jesus. But this gospel begins not, as we might think, not with the birth of Jesus. It begins with the announcement of another birth. The first characters we meet, it's a married couple. A married couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we meet them, we learn that together they are experiencing one of life's deepest sorrows. They're in a moment where they feel abandoned. Even worse, they feel forgotten. Forgotten by the God they've served. And in this terrible, dark moment, God shows up. He shows up to let them know they have not been forgotten. He is taking action. Come with me on this first leg of the journey. Meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. This story, we can divide it into three main parts. Three key words capture each scene of the story. Barrenness, promise, and unfortunately in the end, unbelief. Barrenness, promise, and unbelief. First, barrenness. Look in verse 5 how the story begins. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke, like any good historian, he begins by giving us something that will help us get our bearings chronologically. He tells us that this account that he's recording, it takes place in the days of Herod. This is Herod the Great who reigned for 33 years right around the the end of the B.C. or B.C.E. period of history. So in modern terms, this would be like someone telling you a story and saying, Hurricane Dorian, yeah, it hit when DeSantis was the governor of Florida, giving you something so that you can locate yourself historically. You have your bearings. Okay, I know where I am in history now. It's exactly what Luke does here. In the days of Herod king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. 
He's married to a woman named Elizabeth who also comes from a priestly family. So already we know that these are faithful people. And that's reiterated for us in the next verse, verse 6. They were righteous before God, walking blamelessly, blamelessly before him. And so it's very surprising then that in verse 7, we learn of their intense suffering. They walked blamelessly, and yet they had no child. They were childless. They were lifeless. See, Luke frames this in such a way that we should be curious. We, we should ask questions like, well, why? Why would God allow that? They were faithful. They served God blamelessly. Why in the world would God allow them to remain childless, lifeless? For years, they must have prayed. We learn later in the story that they had been praying. We don't know how many nights Zechariah prayed for a child. We don't know how many nights Elizabeth tried to pray but couldn't. All she could do was cry until finally she cried herself to sleep. So badly, they wanted to have a child. Perhaps some of you know their pain. Perhaps you know what it's like to want something, to want something that is good and to want it so badly that it hurts and to feel like you've been forgotten. That pain must have been the worst. There was the pain of barrenness, but the pain of forgottenness, of thinking that God has forgotten me. Can there be a worse pain? Here's this faithful couple serve the Lord all their lives and they find themselves hurting so badly. But in the moment when they think, when they think that they have been forgotten, that's when they find out that God is taking action. That all along God has heard their prayers. All along God has been there to catch their tears. All along God had a perfect plan and he was waiting on the perfect timing to enact that plan. And this plan is not only a plan for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Certainly it is. Certainly it's going to bring joy to their lives. But it's something much greater than that. See, what you have to understand about this story is that this is not a story merely about Zechariah and Elizabeth. This couple, this barren couple, they are a picture of Israel. A miniature of Israel. At the end of the Old Testament... The ending of the story is not good. Throughout the entire Old Testament, really the storyline goes like this. Creation, rebellion, and then God's election of a man named Abraham and his descendants will become the nation of Israel. And God's promise that one day he would bless Israel so that Israel could be a blessing to all the nations of the world. But the problem again and again in the Old Testament is Israel's unfaithfulness, Israel's rebellion, Israel will not participate with God, will not do what God has called her to do. And so at the end of the Old Testament, get this, at the end of the Old Testament, Israel is barren. What hope, what future could there be for Israel? Because again and again, they've shown themselves to be unfaithful. This story is about 
great joy that comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Sure it is, but it's something far greater than that. It's about what God is going to do for the nation of Israel and all the nations of the world. Into this moment of pain, of sorrow, of hopelessness, God sends a visitor. We read about him next. From barrenness to promise, picking up the story in verse 8. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. So here's the way this worked. There were more priestly uh, there were more priests than priestly functions. So they took turns. They would cast lots to decide who was going to do what priestly function on a given day. Incense, incense, offering incense in the temple was one of the greatest privileges. The incense represented prayer, the prayers of the people. To offer the incense in the temple was the greatest, one of the greatest privileges. Many of the priests never got to do this. In their whole lifetime, they never got to do it. And if you were chosen to do this, you could do it only once. So this is a great privilege. Zechariah on this day is the one who is chosen to go into the temple to offer the incense. It was one of the most significant days of his life. But all of that pales in comparison to what happens next. He goes into the temple, and verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So imagine it. Put yourself in his shoes. Zechariah walks into the temple. He must have been nervous. He's just been selected for this incredible privilege. He doesn't want to mess it up, right? So already his... You know, he's heightened in his senses. His heart must have been pounding butterflies in the stomach. The same way you would feel if I told you to hop up here and finish this talk for me on stage right now. You would feel your heart pounding in the butterflies, right? That's Zechariah. He already feels that way. He enters the temple, and that's when he looks to his side, and he sees an angel. I mean, it's a miracle that old Zechariah didn't have a heart attack. He sees an angel. Now, that's Luke's word. Luke tells us it was an angel. We don't know what Zechariah thought it was at first. He saw something. He must have recognized that it's not a human because he's afraid. He has an intense fear. This is a spiritual messenger sent from heaven to Zechariah. And the first thing he says, do not be afraid. So in Luke's gospel, the first words sent from God, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For your prayer has been heard. You only thought you were forgotten. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth, she will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. This will be no ordinary child, however, because the angel goes on. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. 
And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Oh no, this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary John. He has a unique ministry. First of all, we see that this is a a child that's not only going to bring joy to his parents, but will bring great joy to many. He will have a wide ministry. His entire life is to be set apart for this special ministry. He cannot be controlled by wine. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, what does that mean? When are you and I filled with the Holy Spirit? When are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Not in the womb. Not at birth. At the spiritual birth, when we are converted, that's when the Holy Spirit lives within us. John is the only person in the entire New Testament that this statement is made of, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit even within his mother's womb. The power of God given to a baby? What type of ministry, what type of mission needs a power like that? Well, it's summed up in verse 17. The summary of this boy's mission to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This boy is not the Lord, this is not the once and future king. He's the herald. He's the forerunner. He's the one who will announce the king is coming. Are you ready? The king is coming. His entire life will be devoted to that, heralding the king. So Zechariah hears all this. Remember, we left him back in the temple. He was about to have a heart attack. You remember that? Put yourself back in his shoes. If you had heard the angel, I wonder how you would have responded. Here's how Zechariah responds. Unfortunately, with unbelief. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, Zechariah says... Listen, Mr. Angel, I'm old, and my wife is old. Babies are not born to people like us. How shall I know? He's asking for a sign. He's speaking from a posture of unbelief, of doubt. Angel, don't you know who I am? I'm old. And the angel responds, <laughs> Zechariah, no, no, no. I know exactly who you are, and I know how old you are. Do you know who I am? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And in that moment, Zechariah suddenly loses the ability to speak. 
How happy must Elizabeth have been? <laughs> right? I just couldn't resist. Now, why does he lose the ability to speak? Because he had spoken from a heart posture of unbelief. So he gets that sign that he wanted. Well, he gets a sign, but it wasn't the one he wanted. He will lose the ability to speak, not forever, temporarily, until these things are fulfilled. And they are indeed fulfilled. This passage ends with Elizabeth conceiving. She's expecting a child. And for the months ahead, a mysterious silence shrouds everything that has happened. And we have to wait. The narrative will continue next week. I want us to summarize and finish with a couple of implications. Implications for you and I as we enter into this Advent season. This story is about God hearing the prayers of a faithful couple and caring for them in their hurts. It is about that, but it's also about so much more than that. It's about God taking action, not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for Israel and the whole world. The once and future king, he is coming. John's ministry will be, the king is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Now in this particular passage, I think there are two implications for us. Two that are very prominent. They have to do with waiting and believing. Waiting and believing. I want you to think for just a moment about waiting. Advent is a season of waiting, right? We light the candles one at a time. We count down the days until the great celebration of Christmas. Advent is a rhythm of waiting. And rhythms form us. The rhythm of waiting is how you and I learn to wait. And waiting is something we all must learn. Waiting is never easy. Waiting is never easy. But there will be times when God calls us to wait. It's never easy because we are impatient creatures. We think our timing is best. We think we know best. This story teaches us that when God bids us wait, He bids us wait for something. Something that will be worth the wait. So we learn something about waiting. But we also learn something about believing. Waiting and believing. See, waiting without believing is like trying to sit for a rest without a chair. Try it, and you're just going to end up on the ground. As the chair enables the rest, so the believing enables the waiting. See how it works? We must 
believe in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Zechariah, as righteous as he seemed, when the angel shows up and says to him, your prayers have been heard, your deepest desire is about to come true, Zechariah doesn't believe it. He responds with this posture of unbelief, of doubt. He must have been going through the motion of prayer, but not truly expecting God to intervene, not truly expecting God to act. So what about you? Have you been going through the motions? Coming to worship, bowing in prayer, but your heart, your heart is telling a different story? Zechariah learns, albeit not the easy way, he learned the very words that will come to Mary later in this same chapter. Nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. More on that next Sunday. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this study in Luke's gospel. God, I pray that as we begin this Advent season, in the weeks and in the months ahead, that you would work in our hearts for those of us that are struggling, struggling with unbelief, struggling with waiting. Give us the strength we need to endure. Give us the faith that we lack. Remind us of your goodness, your faithfulness. We can look back and see how you have worked time and time again. We trust you, God. Even when we don't understand. Especially when we don't understand. We trust you. We know you love us. You have demonstrated that supremely in the sending of your own son, the true once and future king. This day and this season, we serve him with all our hearts. With all our hearts.